The following sermon was preached at Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina in January 2016. It stands in the place of a sermon preached on the same text at Antioch Presbyterian Church on March 20th, 2022. Due to a technical difficulty, we were not able to capture the audio, and so we're putting this one in its place. May God richly bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I trust that a great many of you have had the experience of genuine help that's come from close friends. A little over five years ago, excuse me, 15 years ago, uh, my mother died, and my brother, who at least at that point was a professed atheist, asked me to do the memorial service. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. It was in Memphis, and as we approached that service, I had a great deal of uh, fear and trepidation. By God's grace, I was determined to preach the gospel, uh, thinking maybe in addition to my wife, uh, I think our daughter was with us. Uh, Maybe my aunt was a Christian, the only Christians I would have known of that would have been there. So you can imagine in that context, even talking about it, I get a little nodding in my stomach. It was about 10 or 15 minutes before the service. And two cars drive up. Five friends. Three had driven all the way from central Mississippi. Two had come from the Memphis area. And I cannot begin to tell you what that meant to me. For these men to come and simply be there. Knowing then that they were there to encourage me and and to pray. In fact... As a fan of Clint Eastwood movies, I kind of thought of myself, here I was on the street. I was by myself, and there's all the bad guys. And so I looked to my left, and there's two. Looked to my right, and there were three. That's an instance I'll never forget, though, you see, because these were friends who came at personal sacrifice just to stand alongside of me in comfort and prayer. And if you've had an experience like that, or maybe even more than one, you you know exactly uh, what I'm describing. I think sometimes that we don't think very much about the quality of friendship. What friends mean to us, and what it means to be a friend. But interestingly, here in the end of Job chapter 2, the Holy Spirit gives us an insight into friendship. Now, I recognize that he's also filling in the last pieces of the background, the first two chapters of Job being the prologue to prepare us for the major portion of the speeches. And this section is not part of the primary purpose of Job. It's, in a sense, uh, coloring a necessary background. But also reminds you that Job's a part of wisdom literature. And that, yes, there's the great theme of suffering and God's role and sovereignty and suffering in our lives. But just as in Proverbs, there's a great deal said about friendship. I think it's legitimate to see what the Spirit is telling us here about friendship, even as he, in his deeper purpose, is preparing us for friendship. the major thrust of the book, and that's the conflict that Job will have with his friends. 
But his friends, who seemed to be miserable comforters, were not miserable men. They were good men, and they'd come with good intentions. And that's what I want to show you tonight. As the Spirit here is showing us that God uses friends in times of deep need in order to minister comfort. It's God's intention to use friends in intense times of pain and suffering to minister comfort. So I'll seek to open up this paragraph under two headings, the necessity of friends and the work of friends. And we start then in verse 11 with the necessity of friends. In the New American Standard, it says that now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity they had come, that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment to come together to sympathize with him and comfort him. Now first, I just would have you note that the introductory word that Job's three friends These are not casual friends. This is a Hebrew word that means an intimate friend. It's the word that's used in the history books to describe uh, Hushite, that very close friend of David who stood uh, alongside of him when most other people abandoned him. These were close and intimate friends of Job. In fact, as we learn from the book of Job's family, And we don't know a lot about the men. They are as mysterious to us as is Job, but their names tell us something about them. Eliphaz, uh, the Temanite, would have been a descendant of Esau. And you can read of his family in Genesis chapter 36. And he would have come then from the area southeast, probably, of where Job lived. Bildad the Shuhite, was probably a descendant of Abraham through his second wife, the concubine. He would have come down from the area of the Euphrates River in the northeast. Now, the third friend mentioned here, Zophar, as the Namathite, is a bit more difficult. We don't have a name Zophar or Namathite in the Old Testament, but another descendant of Esau was named Zepho. And many scholars think that actually this was another descendant of Esau. So these were three men, probably all lived in a relatively close area to Job. They had heard at least about the initial tragedies of the marauding bands and the death of Job's children. And they, one sent a runner or a rider to the others, and they made an appointment degree to come to Job. Perhaps even as they were on their way, they got news as well about the terrible illness with which Job had been struck. But at great difficulty to themselves, they determined to go and be with their friend, notice, to sympathize and to comfort. Now, in these men, we also learn something about the nature of what we should look for in a friend. And this is very important, uh, particularly for you young people to think about. In the first place, uh, they were wise men. Need to understand that. Uh, I mentioned back when we did chapter 1 that the men of the East were proverbial in Old Testament days for their wisdom. And amongst them, the Temanites, we learn from Jeremiah chapter 49 verse 7, were especially known for wisdom. 
And Eliphaz himself speaks in Job chapter 15 of his own age, that he was a friend of the family, older even than Job's father. So amongst these people known for wisdom, here are the patriarchs among them. And they had come as wise friends to give sympathy and comfort to their friends. But also would have you understand that these were godly men. And I can say that for two reasons. First place, they had a lot of good theology. Now, they had some really bad application of that theology. But Job himself had fallen into some of the same erroneous thinking that they'd fallen into. And we know that God described him as a blameless, upright, God-fearing man who hated and turned away from evil. These men say some remarkable things about God, about justification, things that they would have received by oral revelation, and at least in Eliphaz's case, a vision. A man to receive a vision from God was a godly man. Uh, But also, when you read the description of Job, would Job have had intimate friends who were wicked and pagans? No. Would wicked pagan men want to go to this kind of trouble and sacrifice to go comfort a very godly man? No. These were godly, wise men. Now, we get really disgusted with them by the time the book is over because they let their preconceived notions about the relationship of trial and and personal integrity cloud their thinking. But in terms of their character, Job's friends were godly men. And I simply say to all of us in the business world, but again, particularly to young people and children, be careful about your selection of friends. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, he hates the workers of iniquity. Now, that's a relative term. We are to love our enemies and we're to pray for them. And we are to have friendships in the broader community. We're to love our neighbor and we're to to seek to have these friendships so we can express that love and especially express the gospel. But the intimate friends, those with whom you relish being, those uh, with whom you will spend your friend time that you have need to be people of like mind. I was with a family that I have great regard for. And their son comes in, and he has a friend. And I'm told, this is a very close friend. But he wasn't a believer. You see, I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous to have close friends. Friends that you're with, kind of the Anna Green Gables bosom buddies, that uh, you're day in and day out with them, and you're pouring your hearts and souls into each other. Spending untold hours together. I can't find that to be wise in Scripture. So friendships, yes. Friendships with unconverted people, by all means. But it must be on your terms. And intimacy needs to be reserved for those who share your love for the Lord God. But also, I would have you note, as we look at the background of these men, that uh, godliness can be found in very unlikely places. The, the antecedents of these men would not have been within the direct covenant line. And uh, like Melchizedek, you know, they kind of spring out of these other backgrounds and environments. 
And it's important that we don't judge a person's character by that person's beginnings or that person's antecedents, as we would say. I have heard of churches that do not want to call a man as a pastor or an elder who's a first-generation Christian. Now, you've heard me make appeals for you young men to pray to God and call you the ministry. We need young men raised in the covenant home in the ministry, yes. But that doesn't mean that that's a qualification for the ministry. If it were, the first church would have had no ministers. They would have had Saul, Saul the persecutor. Where would he have been? Or the Reformation. We could have had no Luther, Calvin, Knox, Butzer, Zwingli. Men all converted out of Romanism. No, that's a false standard. That's not one of the standards that we find for qualifications. It's personal godliness. Now, we recognize that men that come out of those backgrounds can have some baggage, and they need to be aware of that. I know the baggage I brought. Aware of that. Deal with that. But we don't make judgments on their antecedents. The same is true with respect with whom your son or daughter might marry. They might want to court this young lady. And you might say, we know his parents are not Christians. And we don't think then that you should see him. That can be a rash decision. It's possible that, uh, as you know, a family that this man or woman might be bringing patterns of behavior out of that family that would need to be addressed. But that's not always the case even there. And so we recognize, even in these men, that godliness can come from unlikely sources. It's a product of supernatural grace in the life of each individual. So these were intimate friends of Job's who were wise and godly men and who also, uh, at some sacrifice, came to be with him. As I've already said, they, they made an appointment to meet, coming from at least probably three different directions, and uh, getting together and coming now to, to see Job. That they might sympathize with him, and they might comfort him. And how important that is in times of need. It's a necessity, and it's actually a duty, isn't it? You think of what the Savior says in Uh, Matthew chapter 25, as he gives this insight into one of the standards of of the judgment of of his people and of the wicked on the day of judgment. (laughs) And he goes to his right hand. He tells them to come inherit the kingdom. Verse 35 of Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Sick, in prison, they visited. The righteous will say, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine. You did it to me. That as we behave like Job's friends, we're ministering to Christ when we do this, to a brother or a sister in Christ. And James, in fact, tells us in his 
epistle in the very first chapter that this is true religion, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of, of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To visit those in distress. In fact, it is a duty that's laid out for us in our confession. In that wonderful chapter, uh, 26, and only three paragraphs, but what a remarkable chapter described church life. The communion of saints. And I commend you as a congregation. I think I see as much of this here as any place I've ever been. And as one family today was describing the congregation, is that they're just joyful. It's a happy place to be. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. So our friendships and our communion come out of our union with Christ. And be united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. You see that? Relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion is God offereth opportunities to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So friendship is exercising the communion of the saints. We have an obligation to one another. This is particularly something that, in which we need to train our children. It used to be that uh, before we had sanitized suffering and death, that uh, the terminally ill and the elderly most often died in our homes with their families gathered around them and little children being exposed to pain and uh, suffering, yes, and even death. And I've told my family that if at all possible, I want to die at home. I want to die with my family around me. But again, that doesn't happen very often. Which means that our children are being deprived of the opportunity of developing a sympathy for the elderly and the weak and the suffering when they're little. And that's when those things develop. As a new Christian at McElwain Presbyterian Church in Pensacola, Florida. There was a lady in the church, Mrs. Young. She only died a few years ago, but I thought she was ancient in 1960. She had white hair. What a dear lady, though. And she would go visit the poor. And she started taking me with her. And some of the earliest Impressions I have about Christian ministry. In fact, there was an old black man one day. We were sitting in his living room. And he said to me, son, now I'm I'm a new Christian, maybe a year into the faith. And we had this idiom in the South. One day, you're going to make a minister. Well, that man was a prophet. But you see, I was there with her 
starting to pray with people, starting to see people that were poor and, and needy. And that was one of the things that God used to put me into the ministry. So we need to be taking our children to the nursing home and to visit the elderly and the shut-in. Teach them what this kind of ministry is about. Uh, Teach them uh, that, as it says in Proverbs, that their father's friends will be their friends. We don't forsake the friends of our parents and of our parents. Grandparents, And that is so rich in multi-generational covenant community. And so the Spirit shows us in the first place, this is sound biblical doctrine. This is no moralizing the necessity of friends. But we also see the work of friends here. As I said, they came to sympathize and they came to comfort. Now, as they are approaching Job, we read uh, in the end of, um, or in verse, uh, that won't help me, I'm still in James. I'll go back over here to this one. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. You see, what they did was enter into his pain. Isn't that what sympathize means? To enter into the pain. They saw him from the distance. Already, his visage would have been greatly marred by the suffering and sorrow and grief. And now this terrible illness that had come over his body and he was covered with sores and he stank and he sat there in his ash heap. And even as I saw him from the distance, they raised their voices and wept. They weren't professional mourners. They hadn't come to join in the chorus as, as would take place in so many cultures to howl because someone had died. No, this was a beloved friend. And they saw him in all of his pain and misery and they raised their voices and wept. You see, they loved him. And their hearts broke. And they entered into something of his pain. You remember the Savior at Lazarus' tomb. Even though he's going to raise him from the dead. He weeps. Because of the sorrow and heartbreak that already occurred. And, and for what yet would come. And remember what the people said when he wept. Oh, how he loved him. That's why he wept. That's why Job's friends wept. They loved him. And remember that Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 4. There's a time to weep. And Paul says in in Romans 12 verse 4. That we are to weep with those that weep in the body of Christ. We're to be able to enter into their suffering. And have true broken hearts. And pity. And to weep. They also expressed their grief. In a culturally appropriate manner. And I've mentioned that. We talked about how Job expressed his grief and sorrow. They tore their clothing. To show their hearts were rent. And they threw dust up in the air. To fall down on their heads. To show their, their brokenness and their humility. 
I think I mentioned before that I was a bit of an iconoclast when I was young, and I, I didn't didn't respect a lot of traditions that I found around me in these small rural towns. But you know, I've come to realize as long as the cultural expression of grief is not contrary to Scripture, you know, gashing ourselves and and uh, doing things like that, getting drunk or whatever, if it's not contrary to Scripture, it's appropriate in its place. And it has usefulness because it's part of the culture. It's part of the very soil, the environment of those people. So they express their sorrow and then they sat with him in his dust heap. These were men like Job who sat at the gates of the city. These were wealthy, prosperous men. These were the patriarchs and the leader of society. Job, let's go inside. Let's sit by the fire. Let's go sit on your patio. Come on, Job. No, Job was on that ash heap. And these three dignified gentlemen sat right down beside him. They came alongside of him, which is the key to being a friend, to come alongside of him. And then it says, when they observed his pain, that they sat there seven days and nights in silence. Now, I think I mentioned before, I don't think that Job actually sat out there 24 hours a day for seven days, because he talks later about being on his bed and tossing and turning and able to sleep. And, and, and yet, when he was awake, he was on his ash heap. And they were night and day whenever he was out there. Job's headed to the ash heap, let's go. They walk out and they sit, identifying with him. And they were silent. Again, when you're young and you've not maybe been around a lot of grief, you think that's very strange. But the same Solomon who said that there's a time to weep said there's a time to be silent. And Another place he talks about the person who sings loudly in the morning and might get a curse call on his head. You bust into somebody's house and you glibly quote Romans 8, 28. That's like the person that's singing loudly in the morning. There'll be a time to quote Romans 8, 28. There'll be a time to help a person think through where they are. Just the other day in, in my um, outer room of my study close friend, a student, works some for the seminary, heard back from his uh, uh, insurance company. They weren't going to cover a certain pain medicine that he desperately needed. And he responded really inappropriately. And I bit my tongue. So there'll be a time later to talk about how we respond to these providences in our lives. But right now isn't the time. And silence is sometimes the best form of ministry. I learned that in the ministry early on. I had a very elderly congregation in Mississippi, and people died pretty regularly. I'd only been to one funeral in my life before then, and I did a lot of them. But I learned that sometimes the most spiritual thing I could do was go sit. And be there. 
And those of you that want to give comfort and counsel, particularly in times like that, understand we don't have to keep talking. We can be there. We're expressing love. And we can sit in silence and let the other person set the direction and tone of whatever conversation is going to take place. There'll be plenty of time. To bring that biblical counsel. But the other part I think is very significant about their sitting was they were reflecting. And oftentimes we speak without reflecting. But you see, as I already said, this, their theology was just thrown for a big loop. What in the world is going on? They, they knew Job or they thought they did. They would have agreed with the assessment that Job was blameless, upright, God-fearing, who turned away from evil, and now he was suffering like one of the most wicked men they'd ever known. And they're sitting there, and they're trying to, trying to collect their thinking. They're trying to work out their theology with this experience. And this is where they went wrong. Again, we need to give them some benefit. They didn't have the scriptures. In fact, we know what we know about why the righteous suffer from the conversations that will take place in the book of Job. But we also need to listen as friends, reflect, and try to get into a person's mind and circumstances. And so it's, it's a very simple little paragraph, isn't it? It wraps up the prologue, so we're ready now to hear their offer their counsel to Job, but in the process, the Holy Spirit teaches us, I think, a great deal about being a friend and receiving a friend, reminding us that God uses friends to bring us comfort in the midst of intense suffering and trial. But we also have had the experience of Job, haven't we, of being betrayed by friends. Uh, there's only one, one friend who's perfectly consistent. Again, as Solomon says, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know him, don't you? The Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, the one who called his apostles friends, the one himself who needed friends. He was constantly, yes, he would have his times of prayer and silence, but he, he surrounded himself with these men and, and the intimate times on the Mount of Transfiguration or in the Garden of Gethsemane. He chose some to be there with him. He also was betrayed by friends. He understood that, you see. He understands when all friends fail. It was prophesied in the Psalms. But it was his bitter experience that um, they would all flee. That one of the closest friends he had would actually publicly deny him with cursing and oaths. And even his greatest friend, his beloved, turned his back on him and punished him as he hanged on Calvary's cross. But it's because he understands that. That he's able now to be a friend to us. Because he went through that. He suffered all that combined we would ever suffer. And far beyond it, as we said this morning. So he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. 
If you've gone out to identify with him, as the writer of the Hebrews says, in his ash heap, outside the camp, in his shame, degradation, and dereliction, have you gone out to him and denying yourself and taking hold of him as he's offered in the gospel? If so, you have this friend who delighted to refer to himself as friend, even as God, Abraham, was a friend of God. Tonight, if you're a Christian, if you've gone out and identified with Christ, he considers you a friend. And he considers himself to be your friend. And everything good about friends that we see here in other texts of Scripture, it's all in Christ. And so even if you do not have that other circle of friends, even if you are forsaken and rejected, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you've experienced that, haven't you? Some of you have been in that place of destitution and rejection. But there was one there, one by his spirit who understands perfectly who's interceding for you with words inexpressible, who's pouring out petitions in heaven, who's ministering to you the grace of his word, because he is the perfect friend. And so it's in him that we experience friendship. But dear Christian, it is in him that we then must learn to practice friendship. I think it is a very important missing thing in so so much of our society today. As Christians, let it be something that By God's grace, then, we cultivate to be the kind of friends, sacrificial friends, willing to to pay the price to be a friend, willing to spend the time to be a friend, willing to enter into the pain and sufferings of others, to weep with those that weep as well as rejoice and laugh with those that rejoice and laugh. You've got a wonderful congregation. And there are many good friendships here. Continue to cultivate them. And of course, one of the dangers when there's good friendships is when the new people come in, they might feel a little left out. So be sure that your friendships are as broad as Christ's friendships. Our hearts can be as big as they need to be by those that God God brings into our paths. Our Father, we thank you for... A practical lesson in your word. A lesson that is to us so very important. A lesson that many of us need. Need to take time to be friends and to develop those friendships. And to become vulnerable and to give ourselves. We thank you for the one who did give himself for us. Who actually did come alongside of us by taking our nature to himself. That he then might truly enter into all of our pain and might pay the penalty of the cause of that pain, and might make us his friends. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.